0: She's a big data enthusiast, a working mom, a Duke blue devil, a runner, a cook, a golfer and a martial artist. She's Inhe Cho Su, IBM's vice president and general manager of Big Data, Integration and Governance. And it's my pleasure to have her with us on this special episode of "On the Record Online," sponsored by IBM. Inhe, welcome to the podcast.:
1: Thank you, Eric. Excited to join.
0: So before we get into big data, uh, let's talk for a minute about martial arts. Okay. uh,
1: I definitely wasn't expecting that. Okay, sure. Tell me
0: about your achievements as a martial artist.
1: Well, um, I grew up in a martial arts family. My father is a grandmaster, so it was hard not to participate. (laughs)
0: So,
1: um, So I started, I guess, I don't know from the time I was small and could walk so um, and officially I guess started when I was four or five years old and um, became a black belt when I was young and has become a fourth-degree master and then I competed um, on a national level when I was in uh, high school junior high and high school
0: so and was uh, is it is it karate is that is that what you did
1: yeah. So what I did was a Korean martial art called Tang Soo Do, and it is uh, one of three Korean styles. A lot of people know Taekwondo, um, Tang Soo Do, and Hapkido. Those are the three primary Korean martial art styles. And uh, Tang Soo Do means in Korean like uh, the way of the hand, which also came from the Tang Dynasty. And so what you're going to have is in Taekwondo you have a lot more. Um, Uh, uh, foot techniques like kicking, Um, in Tonsudo, you'll have a lot more balance of both feet and hands.
0: Now, I know this is a conversation about big data, but uh, I I just have to ask this question. This is also, this is a work-safe show, so I'm going to do something I I don't normally do. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. You already
1: throw me off already with this first question. what,
0: What I have to ask you is, I mean, you're a black belt. I mean, that's, yeah. that's serious. So, I mean, in a pinch, can you kick ass?
1: <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> I don't want people to test my reflexes, though, but uh, I would hope so. Like, right. my, I, I think the bigger thing is, like, um, because when things are sort of ingrained to you when you're at a young age, it's instinctual, right? So, um the way you look at things, the way you set certain environments. Um, I definitely know how to use various objects as a weapon, for example. Like if I were in a parking lot situation, I just felt very uncomfortable the way I would hold my keys Um, or if I had any other objects in my pocketbook. um, I, I know that. I know where all the key pressure points are or the most sensitive spots on the body. Um, I know where naturally the bones would break. I mean, things like that, I, I think, it definitely gives me an advantage. But you never know um, because you don't want anyone to be in a dangerous position, but you just don't know um, what situation can occur. Well, I'm scared. I'm frightened. <laughs> <laughs> I am genuinely. Where are you really? It's yeah. There like are the
0: bone breaks, and my God, that's that's serious stuff. I mean, that's martial arts. Okay, let's get down to business here. All right, let's get it's, serious.
1: It's like a defensive thing. It's not an o- You shouldn't be using it for offensive purposes. <laughs> well,
0: but if you ever met me, you would know I am not the offensive. I'm definitely a defensive type. Um, okay, so let, let's let's start with just some basics here. What should non why should non-technical people care about big data?
1: Um, for the same reasons that I think any business leader has succeeded, which is you think about every day fundamentally, what could you do better today that you weren't able to do yesterday. Um, and part of big data is about um, operating with a level of insight and intelligence that allows you to either take out latency or act and act in a way that you weren't able to act yesterday with a higher degree of confidence, for example. Um, that For that reason alone, I think everyone should be engaged.
0: Now, I know, obviously, there's different types of data. So talk to us about the different... How do you categorize data by type?
1: Yeah. You know, for, First, I think... Everyone is entering, and we're kind of a society as a whole, is entering um, what I would consider a data economy, meaning the value in which um, you're going to be able to differentiate yourself and your enterprise or your organization is going to be based on that knowledge. Now, where does that actually data come from? It's going to come not only from inside your organization, i.e., from your traditional, like, um, repositories that you keep transactional data right records accounting revenue checks uh, but it's actually going to be more and more data that exists exists outside your organization and even by third-party organizations. so um, uh, it could be public data meaning um, social data it could be publicly registered data meaning data that's published within your respective industry relative to be- benchmarks and performance It could even be data that's in a downstream industry that you're related to but has implications. So, for example, when there's a national weather disaster and it hits uh, in another part of the world and it impacts the supply chain, it has downstream implications on a particular industry. Knowing that in advance of when it hits you during that supply chain um, can have a material impact on not only your ability to um, remediate the situation but but really think through proactively how to serve your clients in a in a very relevant
0: and engaged way. Now what about like the origin of data? because data is generated by different methods right I mean there's different sources of data.
1: yeah, yeah so we usually characterize data as kind of um, four types. Um, or I think about it in four types, mainly because of the four sources. So one is I think about transactional data, typically from transactional and or application sources. So if you think about your um, uh, supply chain data, CRM, customer uh, customer relationship management data sources, or transactional systems where you're doing commerce, um, that would be more structured, typically high volume. There's not a lot of variety in it. Um, The second type is what I consider uh, your traditional, let's say, content management type repositories. Um, It could be documents, files. um, That has a a little bit more variety to it, uh, but even in it's semi-formatted. Then you've got two new sources that I talk about. One is machine-generated data. And that could be semi-structured as well as unstructured. Um, But machine-generated data is really data coming out of assets that inherently are not smart, but because they're instrumented, you know the condition of it, you know the location of it, you know a lot of things about it all of a sudden, and it's being generated every second or minute. Uh, And then the fourth category is is what I call social data. It's not necessarily social media, but it's data about people, uh, interactions that people have with other people, it's the it's the um, sentiment around the data sets. It's the identities and profiles and entities of, of individuals. So that becomes a whole another dimension. but if, if you think about those four uh, types and the sources of where they may be generated, it, it can then give you an idea of, you know, oh how you could leverage all of all of that to give you a better insight
0: when you think about the structure of those different types of data, I would imagine the social data is pretty messy
1: oh yeah the social data is the most messiest and it's it's actually um, probably the one that's also um, the most what I consider the most incomplete <laughs> the most uncertain but it's actually less important in terms of any one data point. What you care most about is the aggregate or the metadata. So I'll give you um, one example that we shared actually at our Information on Demand conference that was in Las Vegas two weeks ago. We um, there was a, a, a data point that Jack Porway had shared um, that showed like if you take the aggregate public, you know, crowd data from Twitter around the flu and map out the flu epidemic. You could see a two-week lag between what the CDC reported um, based on time and date versus what was available through crowdsourcing Twitter. So two-week lead time, you can actually have a material impact on location and society. A single data point may not have actually been valid, but the aggregate data and then the metadata from it um, is of
0: value. So let me just invite you into my little myopic world for a second here, because one of the things, you know, I do in my industry and people who listen to this show do is we listen to, we monitor social media. But really what you're telling me is that if you don't have the transactional, the machine and the enterprise data to correlate that social data against, you're really sort of looking at the Grand Canyon through a keyhole.
1: Yeah, it can, it can definitely feel like that. <laughs> you know it's only as good as being able to relate it back to a material impact that you want to have for a particular person or a set of users or an audience. Um, I'll give you an example of like a, a, a client that, you know, I, I think was trying to be very aggressive on leveraging social and mobile, but then didn't really tie back to the operational system, which was a retail cosmetic firm. And they said, Oh, you know, if I had a mobile device or an iPad with the sales rep at the counter selling the cosmetics, you know, I could drive more sales because individuals coming in, consumers would fill out the iPad and and um, they'd capture more information. They they saw an increase in the number of sales. However, they didn't link it back to their uh, customer warehouse and their traditional customer database. And as a result, their campaign management system wasn't linked. And so when they started to send that same audience um direct mail campaigns as well as um, uh, electronic campaigns, it was inconsistent. The message was inconsistent, and the consumers were upset because they said, well, look, I just spent 10 minutes filling out my profile, and you just sent me a different set of recommendations. Is it that you gave me the wrong recommendations the first time I bought stuff, or are you not linking and you know, taking the most current information I gave you?
0: So it seems like when you remove human intelligence from the equation and you let data trigger decisions without someone looking over it, this this type of uh, uh, risk exists, yes?
1: Yeah, I, I, that type of risk, uh, risk definitely does exist. I, I look at these types of um, capabilities as things that augment human ability to make decisions. Um, and we're also working on some new technologies um, that actually allows data to find other data and relevance to be derived later because every data point could have relevance. It's a matter of context and time.
0: Talk to us, if you would, about OODA. What is it and how does it apply to big data?
1: Oh, um, I use it a lot in, in analogies, actually. It's a, it's, Uh, military sort of strategic thinking Um, it was developed um, by uh, a military leader named John Boyd I think during the um, Korean War but it was for fighter pilots you know to develop their OODA loop so observe orient decide act and if your OODA loop was faster than your opponent's, it meant life or death and the expectation was you want your OODA loop to process whether or not someone was friend or foe within under 40 seconds and each time you went into battle your ability to observe, orient, decide, and act on whether or not to pull the trigger or maneuver the plane in a certain way would improve, right, because of either prior practice, instinct, experience, and so forth. When you think about um, operating more and more in real time and operating it with greater relevance, what you're asking every organization to do is culturally develop an OODA loop that allows them to, A, observe, everything in their environment through multiple senses than just their traditional ways of capturing that data. You want them to orient um, with greater context, relevant context, and then you want to give them the decision-making ability with a high degree of confidence and then the ability to automate and or take that action immediately um, based on that insight.
0: Let's talk for a minute about uh, company policy, because I know you have the word governance in your title, or compliance, rather. Um, The more copies you make of data, the greater the likelihood that data security could be compromised. And big data implies lots and lots of data, some of which is probably private or proprietary, and it needs to be protected, so, how do you apply sound IT governance practices to big data projects?
1: Oh, that's a great question. And I will tell you that the more advanced companies that are implementing and executing big data projects have greater investments in information integration and governance type technology capabilities as well as culture and organizational capabilities. And I'll, I'll give you an example. The CEO of a, a major uh, Mexican bank said, who, by the way, is an industry thought leader in the finance sector as a whole, said, in finance, you know, the goal is to go from uncertainty to risk because risk is manageable. In a big data context, the uh, it's the same thing. You're going from uncertainty to uh, enough governance. The, the point is not to necessarily invest in every form of governance. It's enough governance for you to understand the risk so that you can place a bigger bet. And the real objective is how do you drive confidence in the data and in the decision making and in the security policies that you have in such a way that the risks that you take are assumed and known and, um, and you,
0: you need to do that intentionally. So is this all happening in the background? Does a frontline employee have to have some training or understanding of what to do to comply with these types of governance standards? Or, or is it something that's done for them by how the system is set up?
1: Um, it, it, can, it can be a little of both. I would say um, uh, typically to just make it easier, it's, it's what you can implement into your systems and environments. So let me give you a couple examples. So a lot of folks today want to be able to take advantage of new capabilities like Hadoop, which is a distributed file system um, that allows you to, you know, parallel or process multiple um, broad sets of social as well as unstructured data data very quickly and easily. Now, there's no governance and um, um, security around it. However, we have the ability to actually put in some of the governance capabilities. So if clients are moving, for example, production data or customer data into a Hadoop environment to do some discovery or testing, um, it unmasks all of those, which can actually impose a huge security risk. We have the ability to actually allow you to maintain some of those governance capabilities Abilities automatically in the system that allow you to then be able to be more creative in how you go and, and play with new technology. So um, you can instrument the system in a way that's seamless and that's governed and that it's set based on your business policies and rules.
0: What about um, uh, transparency and accountability? I mean, if you've got this big data system that is um, suggesting business intelligence that's actionable and um, you have you know, senior business decision-makers taking action on that data in a way that affects you know a lot of people, is there some sort of um, responsibility that those business leaders have to let people know that they're using their data if it's personally identifiable information? Oh, absolutely,
1: yeah. I, I think the... the the expectation is higher in that dimension. Um, But also, I think professionals that have um, a high degree of of interest in in delivering their set of services and best practices will want to work in environments that invest in um, capabilities, and want to work in places that invest in capabilities, in big data capabilities. I'll give you a, like a hospital example. where I was talking to a major physician of an ICU unit, and he said, you know what? Um, we at first thought that there might be some trepidation around you know, the physicians being assisted with these intelligence systems and, and big data analytics systems. And he said, no, actually, the exact opposite. They realized with, with that ability to process let's say, the various alarms going off at the same time, it allows the physicians to actually bring their value to the table even more rather than having to operate with just a bunch of machines.
0: When you're pulling in transactional, machine, social, enterprise data, uh, this vast collection of of data from disparate sources, what are the risks that you might wind up infringing on the intellectual property of someone else
1: oh you know probably the biggest issue is sometimes um, the things that are okay is you might end up finding new value in data you already had now the real infringement comes in um, if someone gives you data and gives you permission to use data for a particular way but then you end up using it in a different way that's where the that's where you know some of the privacy concerns and and um, let's say entitlement concerns come into play. Um, often, though, it goes back to an earlier point I made, which is sometimes it's less about any one data point in terms of the raw data, but it's really about the aggregate metadata that can actually um, drive the insight. Most organizations I've interacted with want to be able to benchmark the data that they have with a pool of metadata that you know, is provided by their industry peer set versus any one data point.
0: So so there's no risk that if I'm sort of aggregating social data and I'm aggregating data around keywords or around key phrases and the data lands me onto either photos or video or music or, gosh, a diagram or a design or a trade secret that's the intellectual property of someone. Perhaps it was shared by someone inadvertently they shouldn't have done that but they didn't know yeah. and they did and then it winds up in my database am i inventor? Yeah,
1: well i think <laughs> legally speaking we well we don't uh, I, I think that has uh, that does have implications it, it also has to do with intent right so so um um i, I think we're entering a little we're entering kind of a time period where the jurisdictions don't yet um, serve, let's say, the reality of of the way people are interacting and operating. So I'm sure that, you know, the policy regulations around it um, are still emerging. Um, It's not an easy, it's not always an easy question. I I think what you want to do is um, tie to specific um, intent, um, permission, the way I tell clients to get around this, actually, the best advice is go ask for those directly if it's a specific data point. Go back and ask them for permission. For example, don't just crawl the web. You can crawl it and you, you generate the aggregate insight. But if there's, let's say, an access that you want, i.e., access to a user ID, um, verification of someone's identity, go ask them. And ask their permission. And if they say yes, then you're, you're, you're absolved of that risk. If they say no, then you know you're, you shouldn't use it.
0: Now, we've talked a lot about harnessing big data to deliver improved business outcomes, but I want to spend a little bit of time on political and social outcomes as well. And I want to read you a quote from Brazil, Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff, um, which was after she found out that, she, that her calls were being monitored by the NSA. And the quote is, in the absence of the right to privacy, there can be no true freedom of expression and opinion, and therefore no effective democracy. So the question is, in your opinion, does freedom of expression depend on the right to privacy? Wow,
1: that's a deep question. Hmm. I don't think it's a binary answer. I think with any any liberty, um, there is a expectation of valuing what that means, and an expectation of how society should operate, but how individuals should operate, both in terms of what they feel like they're entitled to. Um, I do think. That we do have to be incredibly um, um, sensitive about people's ability to express um, their their thoughts freely. Um, I mean, that's a that's a core uh, core aspect of uh, of not just um, this particular country and nation, but it's it's uh, an important aspect of how. Creativity is generated and new ideas are
0: generated. So, so that's a great segue for our final question. Um, the leaks from Edward Snowden, which revealed the NSA's boundless attempts to cross-correlate personally identifiable information with other data sets and pursue national security, portrays the U.S. government as obsessed with surveillance so the question is, if James Clapper, the director of intelligence at the CIA, were to say to you, in he, I'll give you anything you want, world peace, end of world hunger, anything you want, if you can make the PRISM program constitutional, what would you tell him?
1: <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> I can tell you that is one question I've never thought of. Um, <laughs> you've you've totally stumped me. I honestly did not expect anything around this at all. You know.
0: Well, I mean, think, it's it's squarely but, at the heart of what you know. You're an expert in the in business intelligence and big data. Science, but the yeah. flip side of all that monitoring, you know, on a, on the political and, and the social side, is surveillance. And and we're in this environment now where you know, everyone is obsessed with these, you know, reports that have come out of the Ed Snowden lake and now all this coverage being generated by this guy, Glenn Greenwald, who just left The Guardian, and he's backed by the uh, founder of eBay to start this new media outlet. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I've got an expert like you on the phone, a big data expert, you know i i wonder if you were seated along with james clapper and he was to say to you hey what can i do to make this fair we need the data and we need the, we need the prison program to protect our national security let's say he believes yeah. that but at the same time he also knows that you know if he doesn't make it fair he's going to get shut down so he comes to you and he says hey fix this so what do you here, do the here
1: here's here mandate, I think, for um, um, organizations that are in the technology industry, and I think we have enough people that are creative creative enough that could solve for some aspects of this, which is um, private design design as a first-order requirement in the way that certain software is built that can protect um, elements of individuals, um, not just identity, but protect certain aspects to prevent injustices in terms of civil liberties. This is something that we have actually are looking at and investing in, especially around a new technology base called G2, which is um, to be able to uh, design privacy as as a core element in how we look at the ability to remember data sets that also protect um, identities as we're trying to resolve our identities. Um, it, it sounds kind of interesting, but we, we've actually been working with the Pew Charitable Trust to resolve uh, voter registrations across seven states and do it in a way that protects the privacy of every individual and also ensures the protection and privacy aspects across um, various party political lines and state lines versus uh, federal lines. And um, And it's one of the unique... I would say use cases where we have very different um, political views of the constituents, but have um, resolved in a very positive impact of how we can still protect individuals um, and encourage uh, people to vote, but do that and implement that
0: capability in a software standpoint to automate it. Privacy by design, fascinating. Inhee Chosu, IBM's Vice President and General Manager of Big Data Integration and Governance. Thank you for joining us.
1: Eric. Thanks, Eric.